Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Colby and Ashley Frey, or maybe it's Ashley and Colby Frey sometimes, depends on the podcast, <laughs> from Frey Ranch Distillery in Nevada. So Colby, Ashley, welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. It's a thrill. I've been wanting to talk to you since uh, since trying you through Lost Lantern. So shout out to Adam and Nora, who, as of this recording, just won some really nice awards. I saw that. International. Yeah, it, yeah, they won some really nice awards. Great to see them being recognized for that work. And um, I will. They've got yeah. amazing palettes. They're putting out some wonderful um, independent whiskeys um, through their own label and really proud of what they're doing. Yeah. Plus they're like super good people. So, right, so yeah. double win. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're both, uh, I mean, close to my heart, they're both New Yorkers. So, you know, uh, Nora worked working at Astor. It's like, it's one of the biggest wine stores, wine and spirit stores in New York. And it's really, it's usually one of those places that just has everything or can find it if you need it um, with a reasonable markup, but they can find yeah. it. So, um, we've, so we've yeah, been so there. Too. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, so uh, really since then, I've been wanting to talk to you guys of the of the four samples I tried. All of them were interesting. The four different distilleries that I got to try through them. Uh, but each had its own quirk of the bottle itself. And I'll tell you what, you know, what yours was now, and then we'll get more into it later. But just to give you the heads up that the quirk I was told about was that you guys usually have a four grain bourbon. And this happened to be a single barrel of the three grain bourbon instead. So naturally I had to try the four grain uh, as well to see what that was like. Uh, also got to try the rye now and a uh, single barrel that was at a oh so lovely 129.36 proof. So I enjoyed it. But um, yeah, so, so that was the first entry point. But before we get there, let's go back to being on this and Frey Ranch's origin story. So I'll sure. let you take it away. Yeah. So uh, my family's been farming here in Northern Nevada since 1854. And Nevada didn't even become a state until 1864, 10 years later. And we've been continually farming in Nevada ever since. And ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to be a farmer. And, and, and I always wanted to create something out of the crops that we grew and really like showcase those crops. And um, as I got older, I really started to love whiskey. And it was kind of an aha moment that like what better way to showcase our crops that we're growing right here on the farm than to make it into whiskey. And so um, just kind of like an estate winery, we're, we're very similar in the distilling world where we grow a hundred percent of our own ingredient, our ingredients in, in our whiskeys. And so um, is that really that love of agriculture and wanting to create something and be able to share it with people too. And so, you know, most farmers don't get out much. And so for me, it was kind of a, the best of both worlds. Cause I get to be a farmer and get to go drive a tractor for hours and hours and be by myself. And then I get to go do fun stuff, like be on a podcast with you. And so, um, it's, it's really a great balance, but we're right here in Fallon, Nevada, which Fallon is considered the oasis in Nevada. Nevada is a big desert. And so we're really lucky because we have this beautiful water that flows down through the Sierra mountains, um, to a reservoir. It comes from both sides of Lake Tahoe. Um, some of it even comes from Lake Tahoe down to a reservoir where we um, irrigate all of our crops from. And so um, it's it's perfect because um, my family's been farming here so long and we really understand our soils and our irrigation techniques and our climate and everything else. And with anything, agriculture is completely different no matter where you go in the world. And so by having that 165 plus years of of 
knowledge that's been passed on from generation to generation to allow us to grow better crops that ends up that helps us start off with a better input and with anything with better inputs you end up with better outputs and so by starting off and really growing our grains and growing them in a way that encourages quality not just quantity um, we can tailor that grain and, and really get it the way that we want it and and get a better quality input that we can use for our, our whiskeys so um, you know, most grain is just grown for the commodity market. And by growing it ourselves, we can sacrifice quantity for quality. We can grow it in the way that we feel is the best way for us. And and it's actually grown for a purpose, not just for the, the open market, you know. So what did I miss, Ash? Yeah, you did. You nailed it. You know, I so Colby, of course, I I've, I had heard your um the history of your family, which is I, I always love coming across that because you have real connection to the land, which is clear. And and you understand it uh, very very well, Ashley. I'm not sure I've heard your background. Yeah, on this. Uh, and you, you don't have to. But I, just, I I don't. I, I guess I don't really. I don't have a, like a long legacy of agriculture, or distilling, or anything. But um, I'm a native Nevadan, and me and Colby went to college together. And um, I think moving out to the farm or in rural Nevada wasn't necessarily that was high on my list of priorities and things to do. But I think um, Colby brought me out here and it's it's been such a great journey for us. And we're having a lot of fun being able to showcase the grains that we grow right on the farm and being able to take them and know, you know how they were grown, where they were grown, how it was distilled, and that none of those ingredients have ever left our possession is really something that we're proud of. And we really like to share it with people. Um, I was actually in um, Northern California yesterday and just being able to like share our story and share our whiskey with people and know, like I said, that we've had that 100% control is um, definitely one of our passions. Yeah, and what's great about Ashley is is she actually has her, she got her degree in marketing and PR. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's the other thing us as farmers, we're not very good at. Um, that's not really our focus or our specialty. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's it's almost a perfect um, fit because my strengths are probably Ashley's weaknesses and vice versa. Yeah. So we really complement each other well. So. so if I were to ask you both at the same time, what your organic growth would be, you'd have totally different answers on that just <laughs> um, well i think one of the things with whiskey is we're limited in our yeah. growth to what we made five six seven years ago so we can't just say today and especially the way that we do it we've never bought you know bulk whiskey on the open market from you know mgp or anything like that not that there's anything wrong with that but we've never done that and so we're limited to make sell today what we made a long time ago and so um her and i got together and said how much should we make you know what i mean and it's a it, it's kind of a you know, a, a, um, it's a, bl- like, yeah. a blessing and a curse because, you know, the first couple of years we didn't make that much and we were having to really manage our inventory and really watch every pallet that went out the door because we, we didn't have that much to sell. And because we don't source anything, we weren't able to, you know, just, you can't snap your fingers yeah, or flip a yeah. switch. Yeah. So those first couple of years, it was, we got to get well, into the right accounts, the ones that are the most meaningful, um, the right whiskey clubs. And that's really how we even connected with Adam and Nora. Making a note to ask later about the whiskey clubs, because I'm, as you're the first brand or distillery that has specifically mentioned that, oh, that um, prodding. So I'm going to, we'll come back mm-hmm. to that. But so the uh, jumping into more of the history. So you both mentioned on the, on the bourbon road, uh, that 
actually Colby, that might've just been you, but that's all right. Um, on the bourbon road and elsewhere that, you know, your dad was a CPA in addition to, to running the farm, your grandpa taught you agriculture and uh, both kind of guided you towards business management as opposed to agriculture saying like you could, mm-hmm. you could learn it. You could learn one on the farm. You can learn one at school. So do that one at school. Uh, we rarely talk about kind of the business side of, of the industry on this podcast. So, you know, what, what are some of the crucial topics you took from, from business school that like five generations or more really of farming didn't teach you? Yeah. And that, that's one of the things. And the most important thing is most farmers go out of business or broke because of bad business practices, maybe not because of bad, bad farming practices. And, and the farming side, you can't learn that in a book. Um, especially in when there's different areas, you know, if I did what works well here in New York and you did what they do, what works well in New York here, we'd, they'd, we'd probably both fail, but um, it's, it's something that you can't learn in a book. And so that's why that business is so important. Um, I'm really also fortunate because Ashley keeps all of our books and everything else. And by keeping everything really straight, um, you really know exactly where you are, you know, how much you can afford to invest, how much you can't, you know, and really helps you make decisions. And so, those decisions are what are going to really move a business more than, um, you know, a lot of other things. And so that, that business side of the, the farm, but also the distillery is really important. And so my dad being a CPA, um, growing up, I was part of the, the books, the finances, the farming part, the tractors, everything. And so it really gave me confidence to, to go to the bank and ask for a loan or to, you know, do the things that you need to do to run a business. And so that, that was really kind of a, you know, a blessing to be able to, to be able to experience that growing up and and just gave me the confidence to go in and, and build a distillery and farm, you know, run the farm and everything else. And one of the, so one, one of the questions that kind of crosses over with both of those topics is you mentioned earlier, all the grain grown is you're growing it. Mm-hmm. It's all grown on your lands and all that. So in transitioning from, I know it's a what you said, 165 plus years of farming. But let's say, let's say it was about 10 years ago. I think it was earlier than that. But it was about 10. Let's say 10 to 15 years ago. Up until then, the crops were grown for open market, for feed, for those purposes. And uh, as you said, now the grains are also grown for a purpose, but it's a different purpose. Mm-hmm. So this is a question I have never been able to ask someone because not many people are on their own farms. But you know, if you originally grew grain for um, cattle feed, let's say, or for open market, I'm guessing it was more for you're looking more for protein than than starch content. Yep. So when you decided, hey, you know, I'm into whiskey. I want to try to make this a distillery. I want to still grow all of our own grains. What was that? transition like you know did you have to transition from one strain to another that was more starch uh producing rather than protein and you know how long did that take what was that like yeah that's a great question so um you know as as farmers traditionally like uh, grain especially or farm products or commodities there's usually set prices for commodities and there's rarely any like really quality incentives or anything like that and so traditionally farmers and, and we would do it too is grow it for quantity, you know, and there's, there's, there's very little quality incentives. And so by growing it ourselves, we can, 
grow it in the way that we need it. And we can also grow the right varieties that might not yield as much, but they might, um, they might mill better. They might ferment better. They might have higher starch contents. They might taste different, you know, and we, we take different things into account than just what can we grow the biggest quantity of and, and sell on the open market to, to survive as farmers. And so, um, we played around with lots of different varieties of grain. Ironically, the best tasting ones, the best ones for the distillery were some of the ones we were already growing, but we, every year we still experiment with new varieties of grain, different fertilizer management, different irrigation techniques, all the things that affect the final product. And, and one of the things like you were talking about with starch and proteins, um, protein and starch are inverse. When one goes up, the other one goes down, you know? And so, um, what happens is you use certain fertilizers like nitrogen fertilizer, for example, you put more on the field, you get bigger quantities. Well, when you do that, the problem is, is that you, um, you get higher proteins in the grains, you get more grains and, and which maybe on the cattle market is a good thing because they're looking for proteins. It's a win, win, win for the farmer. But for us in the distillery, we need starch. Um, that's what eventually turns into alcohol during the fermentation process. And so we always take that into account because that, that starch is really important. So we can sacrifice that quantity for quality. But now when you buy grain on the open market, you could bet that the farmer on the other side and, and we would, there's nothing wrong with it. We would too, would do what it takes to get the biggest quantity. So you buy grain on the open market. There might be farmers that buy it from a, a big co-op that has hundreds of farmers that put all their grain in the same silos. And now you might not know what variety it is. You might not know how it was grown. What, you know, this, you know, there's, there's different kinds of winter wheat, for example, there's soft white, there's hard white, there's hard red, there's soft red, you know, and so they keep those separate, but they might be different varieties that might taste a slightly different or things like that. And so um, by growing it ourselves, we can really fine tune it and get exactly what we want, how we want to do it. And then what's really kind of interesting is there's, there's all kinds of things like drought stressing might make the grain a little bit smaller, which might mill a little bit different. It might ferment a little bit different, things like that. But being where we are here in Nevada, we get very little rainfall. So we irrigate all the crops when it needs to get irrigated. So we we um, have that reservoir and we're, we're optimizing it, which creates consistency from year to year, rather than relying on rainfall or mother nature to decide when it rains. It's, it seems like uh, all my friends in a lot of places are that, that dry land farm with, with rain or it's, it's either feast or famine. We got too much water. We don't have enough water, you know? And so by being here, we, we get it irrigated when it needs to get irrigated. And it's all, um, it's all this like nice little like ecosystem that that's really beneficial to us. And so um, that's why it's so important for us to grow our own grains, to really understand it, to get the varieties we want, the use the fertilizer management you want, the, the irrigation management, like we we're talking about, you know, there's so many different things that, that all have to come together. And so, um, you know, we're really fortunate and, and that 165 years of knowledge helps us to create that consistency and, but I always tell everybody what, what's even more important sometimes is what not to do, you know, because in agriculture, if you mess up, you don't get another chance to try again until next year. So, um, you know, like if we plant a crop and it's a failure, there's usually one time or one season to plant, you know, and usually it's a, maybe a couple week window and you mess that up and you realize it a month later, well, you can't try again until next year, you know, and, mm -hmm. and things like that. So like having that knowledge really helps us to, to grow a better crop and, and hopefully create a better whiskey too. So uh, unless it's a proprietary secret, then don't, don't tell me, but so if the nitrogen 
gives you because we get nerdy on this podcast we, <laughs> and i love when we do um the nitrogen tends to give you a higher yield and higher protein what would be the fertilizer treatment to get higher starch yields you know it's just that lack of nitrogen nitrogen boosts the protein and so what we do is we just put on less or or none or or whatever and so we take soil tests we also take tissue tests throughout the growing process and it'll tell you exactly what the plants needs like in the soil test for example and then also when you take the tissue test it'll tell you what the plants lacking and then we can add more if we need it or we we feel confident that it's going to do good and and we're very um you know we really pay attention to the crop as it's growing and um, give it what it needs, but not too much. And that's that problem with like nitrogen, for, you know, for example, more equals more yield, but then, you know, too much is a bad thing too, you know? So it's really a balance and in, in all that. And especially with fertilizer, what's really cool. And, and what I always like, it's an analogy. If you take a barrel and you stand it up and you take the head off the barrel, it's got the staves that come down the sides of the barrel, you know? If one of those staves is cut cut halfway down and you try to fill up that barrel with whiskey or water or anything, you can only fill it up to the highest stave, you know, that 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 stave that's cut, even if all the other staves are at the top. And it's just like that with with anything as you're growing. If if you don't have enough water, well, now you can only get a, your your yield is only going to be half full or whatever, even if you have all of the other staves are all the way to the top. And so you really got to pay attention to the entire process from fertilizer to irrigation to soil to the time of planting to you know there's so many variables and and that's what's really fun as farmers is to really kind of figure all that out and and see what works and what doesn't work like i was saying with my family and and then try again next year one one really kind of neat example is like my grandpa used to keep a little book and every it was a i forget what you call it but it's a it was a five-year journal you know where it had every year you write the same day you write something on it. And it was like January 1st and it would be like and have one. 1941, 1942, nine. so you could keep track of what you did on that day through five years. And so he, really cool. he would idea. look at that and he had them for like 30 years, you know, and he'd look at it and say planted corn May 1st and then May 10th, you'd see corn for, got a frost or whatever, you know, things like that. So then he said, oh, I better plant it a little later because there's a frost and corn can't handle any late frost or any cold weather or anything like that. Corn corn wants warm weather. So he'd say, okay, I'm going to try planting on May 10th. You know, then he planted on May 25th one year and oh, not quite enough time for it to mature. So he kind of developed this thing. You plant corn on May 10th. It's the best chance of not getting a, a frost, but it's the best time that you could, you know, you also have enough time throughout the year to for your corn to grow in, in our area and other areas might be completely different, you know, but that those are the kind of things that are really valuable that, that we use daily or, or annually on the farm. I love it. it again, it's, it's family history, but it's also just science and it's kind of a qualitative science that you don't really get unless, like you said, you can't learn it from a book. That's yeah. just being out in the fields. Yep. Um, so with, with that set of the, mainly farming tradition and more recently the distilling tradition was there any a history of distilling in the family um let's say legally or illicitly statute of limitations passed so you're fine <laughs> no not really in distilling um and and this is what in my opinion and there's a lot of them but in in places like Kentucky it's very um humid they get a lot of water and so 150 years ago 100 you know 100 plus years ago is a way for farmers to extend the shelf life of their crop because grain will store for long periods of time at low humidity. 
if they have any moisture in the corn, they will start start to rot over, you know, over a certain period of time. And so, for example, at like, you know, 17, 18, 19 percent moisture, your corn might have a very short shelf life, um, you know, a few months versus a few years. And so like, but you get it down to 12 percent uh, uh, moisture in the corn, you can store it for years, whereas, you know, and so here in Nevada, we've always been able to get our corn to dry down. It's so dry. It's not very humid and we don't get a lot of rainfall. So we've never had a problem with with trying to extend the shelf life of our crop. But in, in places like Kentucky and other places, they would harvest their crops. They would try to um, eat it. They tried to sell it. They do everything they could with it. And then it's when it's, you know, getting towards the end of their shelf life or they didn't think they could use it, they'd make it into something like whiskey, which would extend the shelf life and and make it, you know, be able to store longer. And we've never had that problem here. So we could store it for long periods of time until we feed it to cattle or we eat it or do whatever we need, we need to do with it. So, I mean, that being said, so with, without any distilling history to speak of in the family, uh, you built the first three pot stills yourself. How did, uh, how did that come about? Well, um, you know, as farmers, we are kind of a, what's the word? We're like a jack of all trade, but a master of none. And so we know a little bit about plumbing. We know a little bit about, you know, how things work and, and, and we can do, we can weld and all that stuff. And so just gives you the confidence to go in and just try it. And then maybe we want to tweak it and do something different. So we build a different still or we modify it or, or, or whatever it takes. And it's, it's really fun to create that. And for me, um, like that's like, kind of like my passion is like to go and do something like that and create something myself. And, and so we built our first few stills and this was starting in 2006 when we got our experimental license. And um, from 2006 till 2013, we had our license where we could build our own stills and play around with different different techniques and things like that um, to, to really find out exactly what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. And we're really fortunate because the distilling world is so open when it comes to like production. They would answer questions and everybody's so helpful. And so um, it's just a great community that that we really learned and, and really figured out what we wanted to do. And, and uh, we're really fortunate to be where we're at. And, you know, well, before we go to that, so with the, oh, you know, let's just jump right into it. The, so between the two of you, multiple interviews mentioned on, on Bourbon Road, Whiskey Lore, uh, Whiskey Cast, that, as you said, you were distilling or thinking of distilling as early as 2006, and that Nevada didn't have the law at that time to allow you to sell or other people to taste. You could do whatever you want experimentally between 2006 and 2013 with the federal permit. But, until 2013 couldn't so um with i guess i mean i guess the first question is when you were starting in 2006 that's like the very beginning of the craft whiskey movement uh, which i usually put around like between 2005 to 2007 uh there wouldn't have been many distilleries craft distillers out there and even fewer frankly at west where you guys are so uh, who did you look to for for inspiration or for guidance when you were trying to figure those things out yeah so um we went on a couple trips to like the bourbon trail things like that but um really what i didn't want to do is i didn't want to make somebody else's whiskey we wanted to make mm -hmm. our whiskey and so um, we played around and we, we distilled other products, not just whiskey too. We played around with different brandies and vodkas and gins and all kinds of stuff, just kind of trying to learn everything to, to really hone our craft. And, um, and, and then you take it to the farming side. It was even more important that 
that 2006 till 2013 period because you, like we talked about earlier, you don't get a do-over in farming. So you, we had to wait till next year if we wanted to try a new variety of grain or, you know, whatever. And it, it really um, is it it really kind of fun. And we were, um, you know, the basis, base, basics of distillation aren't that hard. Um, you know, you're, you're essentially boiling out alcohol. It's, it's very simple. And so if you just kind of think of it like that is, is uh, the out, boiling point of alcohol is a lot lower than the boiling point of most liquids, including water. And you got to heat something up. It begins to boil. You got to condense that boiling alcohol back into a liquid. And so um, how am I going to do that? And you need to start designing it and figuring it out. And that was, that was really fun for me to, to do in those times. Yeah. And I think that um, I'll just add that uh, we were a lot younger and a lot more ambitious, yeah. I think, yeah. um, into like experimenting. And it was, you know, before kids. So it, there was a lot of like, hey, look, I can make this and taste it. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> and and stuff. But it, it was really, I think a lot of it was born, like Colby mentioned, just of like showcasing the grains. And I know these are really good quality grains. And I just, it's such a shame that we're sending them somewhere and we never see the end. We, we never see where they go, what they're used for. So to be able to keep them right here on the farm and produce something was like really, truly our, our biggest passion. Um, and at the time it was fun on this really small scale, um, you know, because we were just really, truly experimenting. Yeah. And we always, we always knew we were a whiskey distillery, but we did the other stuff just to kind of learn and oh yeah, folk, you I know. think you have to though, because you're, you're excited to make something, you know, and I always say like when you have a tomato plant at home and you like grow that first tomato, it's like the best tomato you've ever had in your entire life. Yeah. You can, you can go to the store and you can buy tomatoes, but you have so much passion because you grew it. And that's how we feel about every single bottle that we, you know, sell here on the farm. It's just, uh, we have so much pride in it. And I can hear the pride and that's, that's coming from uh, someone personally who I, my dad has an amazing green thumb. We used to have like those six foot tall tomato plants in front yeah. of our yard. And this is in on Long Island. It's not, it's a fine growing area, but it's not like the fertile crescent or anything like that. It's, it's good. Uh, and meanwhile, I've killed bamboo. So yeah. <laughs> I did not inherit it. I've got one money plant going because I'm, I'm a nonprofit uh, fundraiser by day. And so far I haven't killed that. So I'm, I'm, staying good on that yeah don't worry there's still time there's still time yeah um so uh, between 2006 and 2013 uh when i guess as you're as you're building up and you're deciding that yeah you want to sell this you want other people to be able to try this and such i mean what i guess was the the change that happened in nevada that sorry nevada caught myself on that one thank you in nevada uh that prompted the new legislation and uh, did you play any part in that yeah, yeah definitely we um like you mentioned the craft distilling boom had reached nevada and um there was gosh probably a group of four or five distilleries that were you know starting up and really excited to you know be able to produce a, a distillery with a spirit here in nevada um, and there was no way for us to sell it like colby mentioned there was federal laws but there was no state law, which was basically mm -hmm. the tax structure, which sounds so silly, but there was no tax structure, no tax code um, for them to govern craft distilleries. So we were really all together to just with the 
primary goal of let's get something passed. You know, um, mm-hmm. we all had different ambitions um, everywhere from like us, which like growing the grain was super important to there's a distillery in Nevada, which they're like one of the smallest distilleries and they want to be in like the Guinness Book of World Records. So we were all across the, the smallest. Yeah, as the smallest yeah. Sorry. So we were all across the board on like, you know, the production levels and bottle limits, but we did have this common goal, like let's get something passed so we can all open our businesses. And we spent a lot of time at our state capitol walking up and down the halls, talking to, you know, everybody and anybody that would listen to our story. We brought samples. We had like craft spirits day at the legislature. Um, and we did finally get something passed. It was like a little archaic and funky because it, it was this law that only would allow us to sell two bottles per person per month, but it was something. And, and that's how we all opened our doors here in Nevada in 2013. And then we went back in 2015 and lobbied to get it. Now it's 12 bottles per person per month is what we're allowed to sell. Um, and what was really great is, um, we worked really good with our distributor and we really are fortunate to have a good distributor relationship and they really helped us to push the oh yeah help us push the laws through and everything too so yeah that really helped absolutely it's funny to see which states or in which states distilling was kind of put on the back burner for a long time and um i said one of those differences might be that farmers were farmers are are usually part of that push but as you said you weren't dealing with the surplus of crops that had to be made into whiskey otherwise they would rot so it's not a pressing issue for you as it would be in you know kentucky tennessee uh southern indiana so it's fascinating to me to see like the state by state and someday someone will do a study on the state by state reintroduction of alcohol laws and such um my favorite is still that i think in alabama they couldn't just legally distill until 2015 yeah Um, but if i'm remembering my clyde mays history off the top of my head it's Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've um, all come a long ways. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is kind of crazy, especially in Nevada, though. It seems like you can do anything else in Nevada up until 2013, but not distill. I mean, I, I might have thought it during the research. I definitely wasn't going to say it. So I'm glad you said it, <laughs> not me. Um, all right. So as you've, you know, it's now 16 years, 17, I guess, since you started thinking about distilling and a decade now since you've been able to sell uh, without going into more detail than you feel comfortable with on this question. Cause I know it can be a little sensitive, like overall, I mean, has the whiskey business been more lucrative than farming? Has it been overall a good decision in that sense? That's yeah, that's a good, but a tough question because we're still not in the black. Like we're still investing more in the distillery by a lot than we're, we're making, but that's only because we didn't make huge quantities five, six, seven years ago to sell today. And so we're making quite a bit more today than we're selling, which is why that, that, um, you know, changes. But I mean, farmers historically, like the commodity market is very tough. Like it's like they make just enough money to survive, but never enough money to really like get ahead. You know what I mean? And, and so, um, you know, I, I hope that soon the, the, the distillery will be you know, a lot more, um, you know, lucrative than the farming side of it. And, um, but that, that was another big reason that was like, not why we did it, but another push was like, we want to pass something on to our kids. It's, that's worth keeping in the family. And, 
the farm is so valuable that the actual land is is very valuable, but it doesn't make a lot of income. It's not it, no nobody on Wall Street would go and actually I guess they are investing in farm ground, but it's not because of the money it makes. It's because of the the, the actual ground. It's because the yeah. ground increases in value over years and whatever. But um, anyways, to back up. If I was to buy the farm for the market value from my parents, I would have gone broke before we even started. And so um, we were looking for ways to justify to keeping it in the in the family also. So like making it the distillery hopefully will be worth it for our kids to continue on the farm because my my dad, like we talked about, is a CPA and he always said we'd be better off selling the farm, investing it in some passive and you know, passive income generating property or something like that. We can make 10 times the money that we make and not even have to work, but that's not who we are. We want to, we are, we are farmers. We want to be here on the farm and we didn't, you know, we don't want to do that. And so that's why we're, you know, that was kind of like the icing on the cake that, that hopefully this will make it our kids, like, you know, justify keeping the farm and the family. And so from that, I'm hearing that even if the distilling portion becomes a, let's say a larger portion, what by whatever definition, then the farming, the farming will never go away from the distillery. It'll always no. be based on the distillery. Sorry, yeah. always based I mean, on the farm. Yeah, I mean that we we our our whole goal, and that's why we didn't buy, you know, bulk bulk whiskey from MGP or anything like that. Is our goal is to showcase our crops, so we could never. I, I don't want to buy somebody else's crops and make them into whiskey or anything like that. I don't. That's not who we are, and so the farm and the distillery will always be, you know, connected in that way. The Barkhart Co-op is a group of five shows with something for everyone. First up is My Whiskey Den, hosted by Mike Lisak, Pat Bologna, and Mitch Weddle. Listen and watch live on Mondays at 9 for thoughts and discussions on craft spirits and, once in a while, some downright odd things. And yes, I'm talking about the cantaloupe liqueur that I can't believe could be good, yet I gotta admit, it's fantastic. Next up is Bourbon Turntable, hosted by Kevin Rose and Drew Crawley. Kevin and Drew are true lovers of both music and bourbon, and I got to join them to talk about my own whiskey and music journey back in March. It's still one of my favorite episodes I've ever been a part of, and it's a show that I listen to every single week. The next two are from a guy you may have heard of. After all, he's a two-time guest on the Whiskey Ring podcast. Mr. Alan Bishop, head alchemist at Spirits of French Lick and self-proclaimed reviver of the history of Indiana's Black Forest. Alan has two shows in the co-op both of which are also weekly listens for me. The first one is Distillers Talk with co-host Christy Atkinson. It's probably the nerdiest spirits podcast I know of, and that's including my own, and I absolutely love it. Some weeks you'll be talking and capturing wild yeast in long-gone ghost distilleries in the Black Forest region. Others you'll be hearing from some of the most exciting up-and-comers in the distilling, brewing, and overall spirits-producing industry. Most of these distillers he's gone, I've never even heard of before the episode, but after listening... All I want to do is find out more and explore new ways of looking at spirits and all the nerdy stuff that I love about this industry. And last but certainly not least is Alan's other podcast, If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Exploring the paranormal side of Hoosier-occupied Kentucky, Alan intertwines his own experiences with stories about neighbors, colleagues, and local legends, and why you should never go into the forest alone at night. Part scary story part homage to the rich history of Southern Indiana, this show comes straight from Alan's heart and soul. Take a listen or watch to any of these amazing shows, and thank you to the Barcar Co-op community for welcoming me. 
Join the community on Facebook, follow on Instagram and YouTube, and you'll have another show for every day of the week. So, you know, normally this is about where I would ask about the climate, but we've already gone into that a bit. Uh, you know, dry temper with enough variation to drive barrel interaction. You, it, what amazes me most is that you can grow all the greens you need in a single climate zone, uh, which again, I'm just amazed by that. Um, so with, with those questions, kind of the basics kind of out of the way, I'll ask these questions instead. So you mentioned earlier, uh, drought stressing, um, you also mentioned on, on whiskey lore, you know, testing different fertilizers too, ultimately landing on something to me that sounds kind of akin or on the way to, uh, biodynamic farming in a way. And I know that's not, you know, your, your byline and, and, um, it, it, that's not necessarily the purpose, but I just happened to write, uh, a write-up of Waterford's biodynamic barley up, up in Ireland, learning what cow horns were in the process. And, um, so, but at the same time, and I know it's a long intro, but at the same time, you're also using things like cover crops, like alfalfa to, and, and legumes to, to nitrogen fix this in the soil and, and you have those alkaline soil. So overall, can you kind of go through the, the cycle of sustainability that you're talking about and the kind of year over year cycles that you go through that keep your farm producing the kind of grains you want. Yeah. And that's, that's what um, we call it. Common sense sustainability. Like we're not hopping on the bandwagon or whatever. It's just something as farmers that we've always done. And so um, if it makes sense and it's, it's good for the soil, it's good for the climate, it's good for our environment, it's good for our natural resources, then we want to do it because um, if you look at the bottom of every one of our bottles, it says, be good to the land and the land will be good to you. So as farmers, we got to take really good care of our natural resources, our our soils, our climate, our environment, everything. Otherwise, we don't have a future. And so, um, you know, my goal is to pass on the farm in as good or better condition to my kids. And um, that to do that, we got to take really good care of everything. And so um, we don't we don't want to fit ourselves in a box by saying we're biodynamic or we're, you know, whatever, but it's just, it's the common sense aspect of it. So um, on the farm, we grow, we have a crop rotation. It's really important to rotate your crops for soil health and also for like pest resistance and things like that. If you grow the same crop in the same field year after year, after year, after year, then you're taking all the nutrients that that plant needs. You're kind of, you're taking it out of the soil and, and not replenishing it. You're, um, you're going to start getting a buildup of pests like bugs and things like that. Um, and it's just not good all around for the soil. And so we do this crop rotation where we grow alfalfa. Um, alfalfa hay is a, um, it's a legume, like you said, legumes fix their own nitrogen into the soil. They don't take it away like grain crops do. And so that's really good for the soil. It's also really good to help um, let the soil rest. So we plant alfalfa for five years. That means we're not disturbing the soil. We're not, um, you know, disking it or working it or anything like that. It lets the microbes build up in the soil and things like that. And then also it gets these deep tap roots that go down deep in the, into the soil and, and break up the plow pan. And in, um, you know, you get this natural occurrence. It's like, it's called a plow pan where the, it gets really hard down deep. And with anything like, uh, I, I try to explain to people, you, you have a potted plant. It always has a hole in the bottom for that drainage. You want that water to drain out of the pot. You don't grow up plant in a bowl. It's a, it's a pot with a hole. Mm 
And so that those alfalfa roots go really deep. And when you take out the crop of alfalfa, those roots decompose and they help with drainage in the soil, which is really good, um, you know, for us, especially in our alkaline soils to help, um, you know, get that drainage in the soil. So then when we go to a, a wheat, rye, barley, or corn crop, it grows really well. Then we grow wheat, rye, barley, or corn for two years, and then we go back to alfalfa and it's, it's kind of this nice rotation. Um, in the meantime, we spread a lot of manure on the fields. Manure is the best fertilizer there is. It's got every available nutrient that a plant might need um, to help grow. So we don't have to bring in a bunch of commercial fertilizer from around the world. I mean, a lot of fertilizer came from places like Russia and South Africa and South America and Canada and all over the place. And you think about how much energy it takes to get that from there to Nevada or wherever else where we're just taking manure. If there's a dairy right next door us, door to us, we get the manure from the dairy spread it on the fields and we don't have to buy a bunch of that commercial fertilizer. Then in the distillery, we take the byproducts that come off the distillery, all the spent grain, we give that to or sell that to the dairy. They feed it to the cows, make more manure so we can get more fertilizer. And it's this nice little circle where, um, you know, and it's people are always like, oh, where did you come up with that? And I'm like, nowhere. That's what we've been doing for a hundred plus years. You know, it's just what farmers do to, to help conserve and and um, rebuild the soils and things like that so yeah and um, I think in some of our early years of distilling too when we had no cash flow from the distillery we could take the grain and we could distill it and then we could still sell that spent grain to the dairy and that was a really cool idea for us I mean we wouldn't get the same amount but to be able to say I've got this crop that I grew and I didn't sell it yet, but I'm going to distill it and then sell it. You almost got we recoup like, some of our costs yeah, there, yeah. and so um, it was that's that's really a nice yeah, I mean, thing for us. We, we did that because it really was like common sense, and then yeah, <laughs> and, and that's why we call financial decision. Yeah, and then the liquids that come off the still are very acidic, and our ground here is slightly alkaline. It's not like very you know in a really alkaline ground, you can't grow anything. And so we're just a little bit higher on the pH scale. And we take this very acidic, which is low pH, and we we put it on our fields and it helps balance the pH so we can grow better crops. We're actually able to benefit from it. And we we had a guy that came to the distillery and wanted to build an, build his own distillery in Truckee, California. And they said, just to put this liquid down the storm drain, they'd have to put 20 parts water to every one part of this liquid. And the problem is we go through like 4,000 gallons a day you have to put 80,000 gallons of water just to dump it down the drain if we were in that kind of, you know, in a city or somewhere like that. I also talked to people that that had distilleries in big cities. And the problem was, is just to get the spent grains to a farm, you know, way, way mm -hmm. far away, it cost them more to haul it there than it would, than, the, than they make off of it or the benefit of it is. And so they just dump it in the dumpster or, you know, whatever. It's just, it's gone. And by being right here on the farm, we're able to benefit from those things and um, also our cooling water that cools all the stills is just from a reservoir right here on the farm. So we don't have a chiller or, you know, use commercial antifree, grade antifreeze or anything like that, glycol to cool our stills or fermenters or anything like that. We just use water from this reservoir. So now we don't have that tremendous electricity bill that, um, I mean, I, it'd be several hundred thousand dollars worth of electricity every year just to run the chiller where we spend maybe a couple thousand dollars to put it in perspective worth of electricity to, to run this pump that pumps it from the reservoir and back, you know, back to the reservoir. So we're, it, that's why we call it common sense sustainability. It's not because we're trying to jump on that, you know, fit ourselves in that box, but it's the right thing to do for, I mean, for, for a lot of reasons. It makes total sense. And plus you get very happy cows out of it as well. Yeah. Uh, 
and it's making me wonder. I, I have to ask because I, I know most of the kind of New York City distillers in this area, and up if you go up north to the Hudson Valley, then you're more around farms, and it's it's out of the city, and you can do that immediate kind of the dairy next door or the whatever next door. But I had never asked the distilleries that I've spoken to within the city limits, especially in Brooklyn. And um, we don't really have many in Manhattan. I think there's two in Manhattan right now, but really Brooklyn is where most of them are. And to ask like, what do they do with their, their grain? And we're not talking, I think even the biggest one, and I'm getting, again, going off the top of my head, but I think even the biggest one right now would still be doing less volume of grain than you guys are doing. But even so, you know, where, where does it go They're Yes, they're in the city, so it's difficult to get it, but they're also all on the water. Mm-hmm. Like all of them are on the water. So maybe it's, there's a barge or something to, you know, I don't know who knows. Then, I'll, I'll have I mean, to ask them about that. Yeah. I mean, that it's a two, $300 a day, but if you think about trucking and the labor and the fuel and all the stuff that it takes to get it from the city out to a farm or something, it costs more than that. And that's why they've, you know, I, I don't want to speculate, but the ones that I talk to usually just dump it in the dumpster because it's it's cheaper and more economical. Sure. So, uh, Colby, this was also on, on Whiskey Lore, and I love Drew, so I, I took a lot from his interview. Um, you said that you wouldn't, when you were planning to release things, this is, I guess, 2013 and after, that you wouldn't release anything under four years old. So, was the was the feeling about that that you weren't going to release anything under four years old like a feeling from the start or was it kind of a benchmark that you had but one that you were willing to break if you ended up with product that you liked it let's say three years old instead we we really liked our whiskey at three years old we i actually i drank a lot of it myself you know in that time period and um we were it's really good at two years old even but you only get one first impression and a lot of people, um, you know, would probably look down on a two or three year old whiskey. And we didn't want that. We wanted to start off right. Um, we wanted to be a straight bourbon from the beginning. And I think our whiskey was actually more like five years old by the time we finally got our packaging together and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, but there's a sweet spot because we have some older whiskeys right now that are getting really oaky, you know, that oaky kind of super flavor, which, um, I don't like as much as the younger whiskeys because um, I, I like that grain flavor balanced with the oak, you know? And mm-hmm. so it seems like the sweet spot is like right there at like five and a half or six years old. Mm-hmm. It's like our best, our best tasting whiskeys to me. And that doesn't mean everybody else is the same way, or they might like the extra oak and everything else in the older whiskeys. But um, there's a saying in the wine industry that we carry over to the distillery that you might like, or you got to like what you make because you might end up drinking it all yourself. And I really like those kind of whiskeys. I like our four grain. And, and so that's why we make it that way. That makes sense. And I, yeah, I agree with you that there's, well, we've talked about another podcast, but there's a suspicion, if you will, about like a two-year-old whiskey, can it be good? Could it be better at four? So um, I, I completely get the reasoning behind that and it makes sense. And was there, was there any additional pressure? It's a bit of a leading question. Was there any additional pressure? knowing that it was uh, a whiskey from Nevada that, you know, state not traditionally associated with distilling. Um, 
you know, I think everybody in the distilling world has been like super supportive. And I, I don't yeah. think it's as bad as like, I mean, wine is very regional and there's these pockets and things like that. But when we tell them our story, I think it makes sense because we grow our own grains and and it's such an ideal place to grow our crops here that um, people are much more open about it, it seems like, than, than they might be with other products. I too, that there's this whole trend on new world whiskeys where you've got your old world whiskeys and now you've got this consumer that wants this whole new world whiskey. And for me, a whiskey from Nevada, whiskey from Texas, you've got uh, Westward in um, Oregon. It's like people are doing really cool stuff outside of Kentucky. And I think that that is um, a trend that we're going to see um, as time goes on, even high West, you know, in, in Utah. I think, I think they, you they're can all make, over. Yeah. I think you could make good whiskey almost anywhere. Um, but there's a lot of factors that make it better in certain areas maybe, but it's not, it's not quite as like terroir driven as wine and, and other things like that. But, um, but like, for example, it gets down to zero degrees in the coldest part of the winter here. It gets up to 108 during the hottest part of the summer. That really allows that expansion and contraction in the barrel. You might not have that in other places. Like if you go to Las Vegas, it's hot all the time, or you go to other places that are colder all the time or whatever. Um, but, um, I think whiskey is a lot more open than, than, than yeah. A lot of places. Oh, totally. Yeah. Sure. Oh, I should say, I'm not a good person to travel with for that reason. I've been to Vegas twice and both times I was there, it rained for about a day and a half while I was there. Oh man. Um, I, that never happens. No, it doesn't. It, yeah. <laughs> they were like, we haven't been able to run the fountains at the Bellagio for a month and now we can. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm like, but I didn't get to see anything. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Uh, so anyway, so as I said at the beginning, my my intro to you, your whiskey was through the three game, three grain bourbon. Um, so not the kind of flagship. I don't want to say re- yeah, flagship. That was I was going to say regular, and that wasn't the right word. Flagship, better word, uh, which is the four grain. So you know, getting into those mash bills a little bit, uh, I have to ask, like, you got into the. 66% corn. This is for the for the flagship bourbon. The 66.6% corn, 11.4% rye, 12% barley, 10% soft winter wheat. And um is that soft white, I think, winter wheat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um did you just get there, get to those very particular percentages just through that experimentation phase? Yeah, there's a lot of experimentation and, and flavor tests and things like that. And we really fine-tuned that mash bill when we got our, our master distiller is Russell Wedlake and he kind of helped us. We played around with it and really figured it out, um, you know, with him when we, when we got it. And um, like I said earlier, it's, it's, we wanted to get something that we really liked and we really felt it was important to have um, all four grains. All four grains. Yeah. And you, you know, most whiskeys are corn, barley, and rye or corn, barley, and wheat. And when we tasted, we distilled each grain by itself. And we tasted them all and we really loved like the creaminess that you get off the wheat and the spiciness you get off the rye. And we really felt that they really marry well together when you blend them together in our four grain bourbons with that mash bill. It's a, uh, in many ways, it's like the Canadian way of distilling where they distill the, each of the grains separately and then blend at the end. Yeah. So. And, and we, we didn't, we did that as an experiment, but not, we, you know, we don't blend our whiskeys together when we blend them now, but that's, that's kind of how we came up with the mash bill. And it was a lot better way to taste them because when you, when you distill a whiskey with three or four grains in it, I'm always wondering like, what flavor am I getting from which grain? And it's hard to tell, but when you distill them all by themselves at a hundred percent each, 
and then you taste them by themselves and then you taste the blend, I can tell what the rye is contributing. I can tell what the wheat is contributing flavor-wise to that that blend. Sure, it make, makes sense. And um, just to reiterate that point that you're, the mash bills going in now are mashed together, not not using the Canadian style now, but it was done that way for experimentation purposes. Yeah. Um, I personally would not care either way as long as it tasted good, but there are people who will. So just making that clear. Uh, so having that four grain, you also have the three grain. So what, you know, do you still do both and we, why? So we distilled one batch of each um, seven and a half years ago, just to see what they would taste like. Um, we always, uh, you know, we were just, we just, I was kind you of like, a, Hey, why don't you just go do a three grain and a four grain or a two, three grain Russell? Know, right. Like yeah. nobody's ever aged whiskey in Nevada for that long. And so I think for us, it was like, do as much experimentation and as much like have as much fun with the mash bills as we can, because we'll, we'll open these barrels in five years and we'll have a lot of fun. Yeah. And so it's super fun for us to do that, but also like our, our goal is to showcase the grains. And so by, instead of doing like secondary aging in a wine cask or something else, we want to play around with different mash bills. And so we did a few um, three grain mash bills and uh, they're both, they're all fantastic too. I I'm preferential to the four grain, but some people, everybody likes different stuff. And so um, we did a few, we don't have any left right now and we won't for a few more years. But the other kind of fun thing that we did is we did 100% of each grain, like we were talking about earlier, but we've been doing pretty decent quantities for the last few years because eventually, you know, instead of like a, a store pick, you know, like, hey, I picked this barrel, a barrel pick, I want to do like a store blend where you send them a, a beaker and a, you know, a few vials of whiskey and a syringe and say, you tell me I want 20% wheat, I want 10% rye, I want 48, you know, whatever. And you can tell me what to blend it at. We can blend it like that and send it to you. And it's like your proprietary store blender or something like that. So it's super fun to, to kind of be able to do that kind of stuff by, by growing yeah. our grains, really we, showcase those we really grains. We wouldn't have had access to that stuff if we didn't at least like try it, you know, yeah. seven years ago and grow the grains and, and whatnot. Well, you know, hint, hint, I've got a store now, so I'm very willing to be your first <laughs> guinea pig on that. A couple um, years. Yeah. Part of part of the purpose of the store that, that I'm creating is to do a curated store. Like I don't want to have the things you could find everywhere. I want to have things from people who come on that's who on sorry, who come on the podcast, who have interesting things that um even if they don't come on the podcast that I've tried and was like, oh, that's something that should be more readily available to people. Um so uh yeah, hit me up in a few years when that's ready to go and I'm yeah. be happy to make that happen so uh going further into, into the mash a little bit um you spoke a bit earlier about i know we're, we're focusing a lot on the farming but it's because again we don't i don't get to talk to the farmer of the grain very often so this month's impact spotlight is on pokino whiskey sitting just south of auckland on the north island of new zealand pokino is one of the pacific rim's newest distilleries Founded by whiskey industry veteran Matt Johns, Pocono set out to create a uniquely New Zealand single malt whiskey, one that would bring the lush subtropical terroir into the world's most recognizable category of malt spirit. 
I've been able to try their Origin and their Discovery series, as well as a single-barrel double-matured and ex-bourbon, and each were truly fantastic. And in case you're wondering whether I really do get to try these things that I talk about or whether I even like them, I'm here to tell you yes to both. If I don't like it, I don't have to talk about it. And I can't stop talking about Pocono to anyone who will listen. As of March 2023, Pocono is just starting to come out into the U.S. market with a rapidly growing footprint. I sometimes say that there are distilleries to watch. This is one to watch while sipping their already world-class single malts. Check out my episode with Matt and Pocono in late March, and order your bottle of Pocono New Zealand single malt today. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. Besides growing all of your own grain, you're also, I believe, doing the malting and milling in-house as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Again, not a common occurrence. Most put one or both of those processes outsourced uh, for space, for cost, for one of those things. Uh, it seems like a simple answer perhaps, but why keep both in-house? We wanted to have total control over the entire process. Plus we want to have hundred percent of our grains, um, you know, used in our whiskeys and there's no malt houses around us and in Nevada, especially. And we didn't want to have anybody else control any part of our, our yeah, destiny. Like, you know? If we sent it away, we would lose that control. Yeah. So- in order to have in you know 100% control over the entire process we kept everything in house and honestly it just it just makes sense like why would we send our grains off to somewhere else when we can do it here and right? and to be honest like i think we could buy malted barley cheaper than we could malt it for ourselves but that's not who we are we want to have total control one of the things that ashley tells people in the tasting room like when you take a bottle home from our tasting room none of the ingredients have ever left our possession until you take it home. And that's really important to us. Um, you know, that would, that would, she wouldn't be able to say that if we sent our barley somewhere else to have it malted or bought malted barley or, or anything like that. So it's, it's really important for us to, to have total control. Sure. And when you're met, when you're past the milling stage and, uh, past the malting stage and milling stage, and now you're getting into the fermentation, um, I guess let's go and step back with the with the milling. Uh, I forget on which interview or podcast I was listening to. You mentioned that you experimented a little bit with the milling size as well with the grains. So, you know, what did you kind of end up with on the milling front, and what didn't work? Yeah, um, you know, everything worked okay, but we found like we have a roller mill. There's two different kinds of mills or common mills. There's a hammer mill or a roller mill that most distillers use. Um, the hammer mill gets a little finer. So you might get a little more yield per batch and things like that. But, um, we just always felt like it heats it up a little bit. We just felt like our hammer mill would get kind of warm and it, it could change the actual properties of the grain and the roller mill might not mill it as fine, but we feel like it, it just is a lot, easier process for us, but also it, it ferments fine. And it just seemed like the, 
explain it, but the flavor, like in the mash, the, the whiskey, I couldn't really tell the difference, but the flavor in the mash, like you taste the mash, like right out of the mash cooker, is just like more flavorful in the in the roller mill than the hammer mill. And I, I can't really explain it or I, I don't I don't really know, but that's why we went with the roller mill. It's just oh, it's a lot faster, it's more common, it's easier to fix, things like that. And you need less power. Um, so um, yeah, we have a, sense, yeah. a giant two roll, have a roller mill. We mill it as fine as we can with the, with that roller mill. Um, but it's, it kind of looks like, uh, a good example is we just gave some to a restaurant right off the mill and they made polenta with it. And that's kind of what it looks like right off the mill. It's like a kind of a, I guess you would call it like a coarse grain polenta. It's yeah. like a mill. Yeah. It's just a yeah. Yeah, cornmeal. That's what yeah. I, that's what I use for my polenta at least. So, yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I find a much more flavorful you get a little texture in there i like it um that that reminded me too of a question i forgot to ask earlier on which was just jumping back quickly to the experimental phase when you were building your own stills and and figuring things out any early on disasters of uh the grain overflowing or the something i don't know hopefully not blowing up but anything like that that you had to deal with nothing nothing blowing up Think, thankfully, um, we did have, yeah, our, our, so rye, when you make rye whiskey, there's these polymers in the rye that make it really like slimy, like these, you know, you stick your fingers together and you go like this and it sticks together if you're, you know, cause it's so slimy. And the, the problem is during fermentation, it creates CO2. That CO2 normally just floats to the top of the tank and it dissipates, um, you know, at the top of the tank. Well, with rye, those polymers keep that that um that those that co2 from going to the top of the tank and dissipating so it, it basically becomes encapsulated inside the the tank itself so it expands the whole tank expands because of all that co2 um and so our first batch of rye we ever did and, and our rye is 100 rye and so that's a good reason why a lot of people put other grains in the rye is to kind of help dilute it and and keep it you know get the the viscosity down and everything and so um that rye though it expanded and it overflowed in the tank. And it, it, we had like three inches of like rye snot in the entire floor of the distillery our first time. And um, we thought we were being smart. We put some anti-foam agent on the top of it, thinking it might break it down or whatever. And um, so that was our first big batch of rye. And so since then, we've learned to fill up the tanks halfway. It will, um, the, 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 the tank essentially goes all the way to the top. It expands. Then as fermentation gets to a certain point, the viscosity kind of drops, the, those polymers break down and, and it just sinks back down to half halfway vol volume again, um, you know, towards the end of fermentation. And so um, we learned that since then, we played around with different um, enzymes. Uh, we've played around with different cook temperatures and things like that to get those polymers broken down more at the beginning. And so we've found a, a way to make 100% rye and actually fill up the tank almost all the way, not quite all the way, but uh, and, and really fine-tuned it since then. But that was like a holy crap, like because it wouldn't even go down the floor drain. We couldn't even like slipping around on it. It's like you're on ice, you know, because it's so slimy and it it's wild. always the rye. It's yeah. Oh, whenever I ask, it's always the rye that yeah. Is, and I mean, you get that that was early on, you know, so there weren't a lot of people making rye frankly at that time or anything but even today when i talk to a new distillery and i'm like so you had any mishaps going it's always the rye yeah yeah every time the bourbon is so easy compared to rye just it's almost yeah. hard to mess up the bourbon but the rye is like very finicky yeah 
Uh, yeah, I think I forget which podcast I was talking to someone about the um, about those the, the beta glucans, the proteins and the structures yeah. in there. And um, yeah, again, I went down a rabbit hole, but yeah, that's how you find out things. Uh, so to your to your point, you were um, you making a hundred percent rye for the rye, the uh, both the three grain and the four grain bourbons have uh you know they have enough barley in there to ostensibly not need extra enzymes um in it but it seems you seem to say at least for the rye obviously you do need the enzymes in mm-hmm. there so um do you for the bourbon do you generally just let the natural enzymes go do you add in other pitched enzymes we, we add a little bit of enzymes to the bourbon too um it just really helps that viscosity and get that that down but it is amazing, like when we're mashing in the bourbon, and I, I don't think a lot of people really realize this until I, I kind of put it in a perspective why barley is so important. But we cook the grains, um, we cook the corn up to like 200 degrees, for example, and we add the corn first, the, the mash cooker. Then we cool it down to 165 and we add the wheat and the rye. And um, at this t- at this point, the viscosity is super thick. And so, um, you know, you just look in the mash cooker and it seems very like the, you know, just like porridge, almost like super, um, thick. Then you, we cool it down to 155 and we add the barley and the barley, the common sense would say by adding more solids to an already thick liquid, it's going to get thicker. Right. But the enzymes that are created during the, the malting process liquefy the starch in the other grains and it actually becomes more watery. The viscosity goes down. And so that just creates a better environment for the yeast to work. It creates, um, you know, it's easier to pump and it, it also create it, it makes it so you can actually use more grain and have a higher um, mash bill. You know, your, your grain quantities in your mash bill can be a lot higher, which then ferments into more alcohol and it's just a lot more efficient in the whole distillery. And then next obvious question, what yeast are you using? So we do use two different kinds of yeast. We actually use a champagne yeast for um, alcohol production. And then we use different different yeast for everything else, but they, we use anything from like, um, there's a few whiskey yeasts, but we even use like a Scottish ale yeast and um, different liquid yeast for those. For, and that's more for the flavor of the whiskey. All right. I won't ask you too many details. I know that's going to be a really proprietary thing. Um, ah, we're- I, just, I just spoke to Cedar Ridge a couple of weeks ago and um, also a Lost Lantern introduction. And <laughs> they've got a very proprietary method for that. So I won't push you on that one. So the, in addition to the kind of core range, uh, the flagship bourbon, the three grain, the rye, my next question is about that quad malt. And so for the listeners at home, let's go ahead and explain what the quad malt is and how that came about. Sure. So we, we malt here. So, and you can malt any grain. Grain is essentially a seed. And for anybody that doesn't know what the malting process is, you just, you're basically taking that grain and you're sprouting it and then you dry it so that it, it stops growing. And and that's considered malt is it's easy way to explain it is you're sprouting or or germinating the grain. And um, it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's kind of the, the easy way to explain it. And so you can malt any grain. So you can malt wheat, you can malt rye, you can malt corn. And then traditionally it's malted barley is in most whiskeys. And so because of the enzymes, like we talked about earlier. And so we malted wheat, rye, barley, and corn, and we made a, made whiskeys with the same mash bill as our bourbon, 
but all four grains are malted. So now you can tell what flavor it would be if all the grains are malted, not just the malted barley, like our traditional bourbon. So um, the quad malt is, we bottled it at the same proof, 90 proof, like our, our flagship bourbon. Um, and it's got the same mash bill and it's the same exact grain, not even different grains. It's the same grain, just malted. And it's really kind of fun to taste them side by side because they taste completely different. Um, it's a lot like, it's just a lot like sweeter and, and got these like, um, almost like, what, what do you, how would you explain it? Like vegetative quality. Like when I walk through a cornfield, when it's like shoulder high, like five foot tall, maybe. And, uh, it's growing so fast at that point. And it's like at midnight when it's kind of cool outside, it's like, it's putting off all of this, like transpiring all this moisture into the air and the smell that I get when I'm walking through the cornfield, irrigating it like late at night is the same flavor that I get off of the, um, the, the quad malt. Yeah. So like, I mean, I think for me, it's not so much like the really rich sweetness, like, a creme brulee it's more like a confectionery sugar um it's just a little bit that's for yeah, me that's what i guess like it, more but it, it's like sweeter yeah but it's so much different but like to do that we were really trying to showcase the grains and like play around with that stuff and so we malted all four grains um we also had a 100 percent malted corn um we had a um you know all kinds of other grains that we kind of played around with we have a a scotch style where we we made our own decomposed corn stalks. So um, peat is essentially like centuries or, you know, thousands of years of decomposed plant matter. Um, and so we, we composted our own corn stalks. We pressed, well, we uh, got this like powder that comes off the mill. We mixed it with water and mixed it with these decomposed corn stalks and pressed it really hard in bread pans to make bricks, dehydrated that, used that to smoke our, our, um, barley to make like a Scotch style whiskey. Um, we have a hundred percent malted, like a, you know, unpeated whiskeys, like all kinds of other stuff you can do. So we, we tell everybody where we make 80% bourbon, 15% rye, and then 5% other things. And I, I tell everybody it's, it's 5% of our production, but 95% of the fun, because um, it's, it's really our way to, to express ourselves through the grains, you know? And so we have a smoked oat and rye. We have each of the grains distilled by themselves. We have five grain bourbons with oats added to it. We have four grains with oats in the place of wheat. And uh, we have four grains with oats that have replaced rye. Um, we have uh, like but all kinds like, of stuff. These are like such small quantities. So our oat whiskey, we had two barrels. And so we bottled them in three, seven, fives, and we sold them in our tasting room. Um, and I mean, the amount of people that would you know, make the drive and the trip out to us to pick up their bottle of oat whiskey was really cool. And we sold out. I mean, we had 900 bottles and they sold out so fast. And, we, and we've only released four of these so far. So the 100% malted corn, the quad malt, the oat whiskey, and we have 100% wheat whiskey. Um, the other ones are still kind of in the pipeline. They're almost ready. And so we're just kind of working on labels and, and wait until they're six, seven years old before we release them. I admit I was really dumb and I I hesitated on the wait on the wheat whiskey. I saw it come up. I knew we were going to be talking and I didn't pull the trigger and I. And I, oh, that I sold out so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I can't couple, believe how fast. Yeah. We, we, I think we had 400 bottles um, ready to go. And I thought they'll probably last like a couple weeks. Like that's a lot, you know? 
And it was like two or three hours. I, I literally mm-hmm. could not believe the orders that yeah. were coming through. Yeah, I went back later in the day, just a couple hours, and it was it was gone. I, I was planning to yeah. get the, the three pack of the the bourbon, the rye, and the wheat to try it, and I was like, "Damn it!" And yeah, so I'll have to wait five years for the next one. Yeah, I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. make no, sure we'll, we'll get the next more. One. We'll have more. We, we have but, more. Yeah, yeah, the wheat, those ones, the wheat, and, and some of them we made every year. So it's not like we made it and then wait five years. So we have yeah. quite a bit in the pipeline. Yeah, are the ones are the ones you also mentioned? Uh, I mean, I'm. I love anything with oats in it. I find it just adds a really nice character that you don't usually find in any whiskey, let alone American whiskeys. Uh, so that smoked oat and rye one sounds really interesting to me. So I definitely want to see where that one goes. Uh, but going back to the the idea of kind of creating this peat-like substance out of the corn stalks, um, I get the, so um, I mean, you, you described it really well in terms of how you create it. It's just pressing it into what you usually think of as like peat bricks in a bread pan and then smoking it. So uh, how many kind of versions did you have to go through to get it to where you want it? Or did you, did you have a particular flavor profile in mind going into that? Kind of. Well, and, and we also had to make our own smoker cause there was, you know, and, and, First of all, we made, had to make that peat because in, in Nevada, there's zero peat. It's the desert. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, so, um, but then we made our own smoker and we just, what we did was, is I didn't want to smoke it from underneath because that would heat it up. Um, and we didn't have a big, you know, like a Scotch style fireplace chimney system and everything. And so we took a, um, a silo that was sealed and we put a chimney at the top of the silo. And we, we had a fireplace and the fireplace would create the smoke. It would go into the top of the silo. And then we had a little fan that would pull the smoke from the top of the silo through the barley out the bottom of the silo through a screen. And it would essentially smoke it. And so it's a totally different than I think they do anywhere in Scotland or anything like that. But it's our farmer farmer way to do it. And uh, it really kind of came out good. And each one, we kind of, every year we only did one batch and we kind of played around with different amounts of, of peat and things like that. And so... That's what they're going to be batched where every batch is a little bit different and, and we're still tweaking it and, and learning, um, you know, on that part of it, but it's fun. Yeah. It seems like when I first heard it, I, I was like, did I just hear what I thought I heard? Like they're using corn stalks to make it. And then it also makes complete sense to not want to heat it up. Like you said, you're not using it to kill the mm-hmm. grains like they would in, in uh, Scotland or Ireland or Japan. Uh, and I would also imagine it's easier in some ways having that whole leather apparatus because you don't have to clean the smoke out of mm-hmm. your other malting apparatus. Exactly. Yeah, we didn't want to mess up future batches of malt, and um, and it, and I'm sure you're familiar, but like the you can buy different grades of of roasted barley or 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 um, for different beers. I mean, you get like chocolate malts, and that can make darker mm-hmm. beers. Or you get the lighter malts, the crystal malts, and things like that. And, and so we didn't want to change that profile of the barley by by heating it up. So we wanted it just easy, consistent, and replica, replica, replicable, replicable, whatever that word is. No, it it makes sense. And um, again, on the, I think it was also with Cedar Ridge. So this uh, throwback, but uh, I'm a big believer in uh, you just you can't get peat out of 
a still, no matter how hard you try, it's just, it's always going to be there just a little bit. Um, so I'm glad you figured out a whole new way to do it that you never have to clean that or you never have to clean it to the sense that you have to get rid of the peat and the smoke. So, yeah. So bravo on that one. Um, all right. So just a couple more questions for you with the final processing. And actually these next two questions are, can get a little, uh, controversial, but we'll see. First one is final processing. How do you proof your whiskeys down? What you're asking, like with the water or what the proof or what, what, what's, what do you mean? So, um, usually I would say like, is it a, a fast or slow process? Um, it's, it's several it. steps. So, well, I mean, we'll do a calculation that we can tell and get it within a couple percent, you know? So a lot of times when we do our blends are like 125 proof, you know, coming blended together and when we're cutting it down to 90. And so we'll do a calculation, get it within a few percent of where we want to be. And then we'll slowly do it steps at a time because there's a lot of things that affect proof like temperature. And, um, and so we will bring it into the, the bottling room within a couple percent. And then we'll start adding small quantities of water until we get it right to where we want to do. But we'll usually we'll wait like six or eight hours, test it again, add a little bit more water. And it, it's a several day process. Again, that's, it's, doesn't seem that like it should be that controversial, but people yeah. a lot. What, some people the controversial part of it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I never. Yeah. yeah. What's the controversy? So uh, the feeling of should you slow proof to avoid saponification in the whiskey, or or shocking the whiskey, or can you quick proof because it doesn't really matter? And um, I'm gonna uh, uh, I'm gonna repeat a story here that I think is worth repeating. That uh, with. I in short succession, I spoke to both Colin at Santa Fe Spirits and um, Ian uh, Ian Sturzman at MGP. And Colin is a big proponent of very slow proofing. Like his proofing process takes a month or more for batches. Uh, whereas, and his whole thing is to avoid that saponification. He doesn't want the the compounds to glop together and get that quality. And I get that. But then very shortly after I was on a chat with Ian about, I think it was the Remus repeal six, one of the Remus uh, releases. And I asked that question. I said, you know, you're this huge plant. Like, how do you, do you, you know, I don't think you would have the time to slope or like, how do you proof down your whiskey? And he said, no, we just pretty much throw the water in like pretty quickly. Um, I don't think he said throw it in, but he said, you know, they proof it down pretty quickly. And uh, I don't think anyone would argue that, MGP stuff is like has that soapy quality or anything. So I think that there's definitely that overall sense of it depends on the place, depends on the other processes involved, the oils, I'm sure, especially as they react to the water um, and, and hydrophobic and hydrophilic compounds. But I've started asking the question just because sometimes people have a very strong opinion on it. And then other times it's like, you were just, no, we just, prove it down and we get it closer and closer and that's it yeah we, and it works we've never so. had any problems yeah, yeah. And we and yeah. yeah that's interesting no i mean i'm definitely gonna look into that yeah all right so the next one is uh i think you'll understand why it's a little more this is a little more obviously controversial question so it involves the neck pour <laughs> and so 
you both said on whiskey lore that there is such a thing as a neck pour in so far as the whiskey can open up more after or after the uncorking in the first pour so there are people who are like no the neck pour is like that's the place you want to be you want to have that first pour other people like just pour the neck pour away yeah and disregard it so clearly you find value in in both sides personally i'm more with you guys on like it just opens up and things change as they oxidize and also you just flip a bottle upside down boof neck pour is gone so oh, yeah 100% i i think it's more of like the philosophy of like like here here's a good example when we're doing barrel picks we'll offer six samples mm-hmm. and you taste the first one and you go through all six of them and you taste the first one again and it's completely different and not because you're getting drunk or anything like that. I'm saying taking tiny little sips and everything, but it's because your palate's acclimated to it. And so I think a lot of people like with the neck pour, it's like their first sample and their palate's going from zero to whatever that whiskey is. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And and it might taste different. So yeah, I think I that mean, has a lot to do with it. For me, if you open a new bottle of whiskey and you're pouring it in a glen and you're letting it really you know, open up and you're, you're mixing it. I, I definitely think you're adding oxygen and it's, it's, yeah, you're, I, I don't know. I, it's not I like the whiskey in the neck's yeah. any different exactly. than the rest of the whiskey, right. but as you take that neck pour out too, you've introduced oxygen to right. that bottle. Now it maybe mm-hmm. has more surface area on the bottle. So when you taste it, you know, later at a later time and everything else, mm-hmm. it's had that time to sit there with the oxygen and everything else. And so I, I don't think it's necessarily like the whiskey in the neck's different, but at the same time, I think it's, I think it's perception. Like I said, maybe it's the first sip of a, you know, whatever. And then it's also yeah. that bottle hasn't been opened as an oxidizer or anything well, like that. And I think too, like for me, I'll have a bottle and taste it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like I, I'm just really enjoying this. And then the next time I go back to it, I'm like, oh, it's, it's not as good as the way I remember it or vice versa. And it's because of something you ate are you dehydrated are you hydrated has your palate changed your mood yeah your mood yeah. you know for me my palate's best in the morning i could drink something in the morning and then after dinner and it like they taste different to me i think so i i think it's a little bit more than that it's you know i think personal. your mood's a little different when you first open a bottle of whiskey than after you have had there a little bit too right for sure for sure and i wish um uh, i don't know when what part of the day my pal is better at but if mine were in the morning that's a damn good argument for being able to drink earlier um <laughs> you at least have an have an excuse it's yeah a, it's yeah, yeah. Like, it's, when, we're know, bar- when we're doing barrel picks like 10 a.m yeah. is like prime it's yeah it's and like it is the, like, like before lunch before i can lunch. always taste better than after yeah. lunch yeah yeah so all right so the last last questions are about the future for Frey Ranch, barring from the past, but also the future. So you've labeled, you've listed a couple rather of uh, products that you're working on that are aging and just waiting for them to be ready. Uh, you're clearly growing and uh, getting distributed more. You have a very dedicated following, as the uh, bottle sales will attest to. Um, but just jumping back a little bit, I'm curious to ask you about the gin and the absinthe that you used to make. And as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't make those anymore. No, we don't make them anymore. So um, number one, what what were the profiles like for those two? 
Ooh. So our gin, we used, so the Nevada state flower is actually silver sage. But the base of it was really a high rye. The base of the, that yeah. one was a high rye, a high rye of the gin. A, and then there were yeah. seven botanicals. So juniper, berry, coriander, cardamom, and delicate root, lemon peel, orange peel, and fresh sagebrush was the final. And so, yeah, but this, that's that's yeah. really like the floralness. So I don't know if you've ever had, but silver sage is a little bit different than like your culinary it's sage. sage. Yeah, it and, was like our state flower. And and it's so floral. Yeah. And it really the, added that floralness. The sagebrush in it was the least quantity of mm-hmm. any botanical that was in our gin, but it, it imparted the most flavor. Or And at least the like the floral, like when you yeah. smell it, you really smell that oh, sage. Yeah. And like it's when it rains in Nevada, it you get this like smell from the sage like right after the rainstorm that's what i got from our gin um the absinthe now um we had two different kinds of wormwood um it had 11 different botanicals in it and um what was really kind of fun with the absinthe or or really the inspiration was somebody told me one time you can't make absinthe and i'm like don't tell me (laughs) that so we we made absinthe um and uh it really really came out good um but we've always thought of ourselves as a whiskey distillery and we always told everybody that stuff kind of gave us something to do while we're waiting for the whiskey to age. And once the whiskey became of age, we quit making all that stuff because we don't want to be known for that. We want to be known for a whiskey distillery and we want to be known as like the leader in the farm distilling movement, you know, and that's, that's really our passion and where we want to be. That it's that's completely fair. I ask because I'm a big fan of both gin and absinthe, um, particularly when, as as you described with the sage that with the silver sage that they incorporate something of the local environment. Um, anyone can make a gin, for the most part. Let's say let's use the generalization. Anyone can make a gin, but to make it something that's going to stand out and have something local about it, about the character, I think is important and those are the ones that i like to try most yeah so i think gin was like having a, a moment too and it maybe it still is yeah. i haven't been following it that much yeah, but, but I, and there's I, a lot of like amazing regional gins our, that, there, yeah. our gin won a lot of awards too we got double gold at the san francisco world, world spirits competition yeah uh, all kinds of stuff yeah yeah it's it's definitely part of the um part and parcel of the mixology and cocktail movement yeah it's, it's such a versatile spirit uh particularly again depending on what gin you use and we're using it from um and again with the with the absinthe i think you also caught it on the right time where it was illegal to create here until 2007 so or even have it here i think until 2007 so it would have been perfect timing to be able to bring it out so it's a shame that they won't be produced anymore um i don't think i'll be able to find samples of those those are probably long gone by now but um still it's good to it's good to remember the spirits that got you there and and where it came from so uh with that colby ashley thank you so much for taking the time to talk through everything at Frey ranch for um bearing with my alternate sayings of nevada and nevada (laughs) it is the latter is the correct one for those listening and um yeah i'm just thrilled to to see the passion that both you get you both have but also the passion that your fans have me being one of them for your products that you're selling out in a couple of hours with these bottles which is great so also a warning to people buy it don't wait just click <laughs> click the button uh, oh, don't make you. the same mistake i did so yeah, this um, is so thank you 
Yeah, it thanks was, for it, having it, us. It's super fun for us. I'm actually going to go get back on the tractor right now. It's springtime, so um, we're getting everything all prepped up and ready and kind of excited. Everything's starting to green up right now. Today's our first day. I actually took my sweatshirt off for the first time this spring, so it's yeah, finally starting to warm out. up, and everything's kind of starting to wake up. So as farmers, like when something starts to get green, we just get this like urge to get out and start working. So I bet. Well, you go to it. Uh, well, hang on for one minute and then you go to it. Um, thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. It's been another episode of the Whiskering podcast. Hang on for an end roll so you can find out where we all are. There will also be uh, links in the show notes to reviews and tasting notes of free ranch products where you can find them on social media, the website, and anything else you need to know. So thanks once again, and I'll see you next week. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection. And sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting right now, only five spots remain in the barrel share club. So grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.